You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, it's Labor Day weekend. And that's a time that brings many privileges. Hopefully, we're getting some kind of a break from work. Uh, lots of folks are traveling. Maybe we're going to have a cookout with our families over the next few days. Uh, college football's back. It's a good time. Um, and, and, you know, there are so many enjoyable privileges and advantages and benefits that are associated with this time of year, which we enjoy. But, friends, these privileges and benefits, as pleasant as they are, totally pale in comparison to the privileges that the believer in Jesus Christ enjoys. And this morning, as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel, we're going to come to a passage that highlights some of these privileges that we have in Christ. Matthew chapter 7, 17, verses 14 through 27. And in our passage today, we're going to see three points. First, we're going to see that God grants his people the privilege of boldly approaching him in prayer which must be exercised in faith. Second, we will see that God grants his people the privilege of true freedom because of our adoption as his children. And third, we're going to see the the basis and the very high cost that was paid to win these privileges. So without further ado, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 17, and we're going to start with our first point, which is that God grants his people the privilege of boldly approaching him in prayer, which we've got to pray in a way that's characterized by faith. Now, over the last four chapters, Jesus has been preparing his disciples, because very soon he's going to head to Jerusalem to die. Very soon his disciples are going to become the leaders of the early church, and Jesus has been preparing them for what is going to happen. And Jesus has done this really in two ways. First, he has corrected some of the disciples' long-held religious presuppositions. He has corrected what they thought the mission of the Messiah was. They thought the Messiah was going to be this conquering warrior when he first appeared. And Jesus says, no, he's a suffering servant. He's corrected the way that they thought about the Gentiles. They thought the Gentiles were unclean dogs who were forever cut off from the life of God. But no, Jesus shows them now God is going to fully and completely include believing Gentiles in his salvific purposes alongside believing Jews. Jesus has corrected the way that they looked at the Jewish religious elites. And the Pharisees thought the, or the, the, the disciples thought the Pharisees were important and holy. Jesus says, no, they're corrupt hypocrites. So Jesus has been correcting the disciples on a number of points. But more than that, Jesus has also given them an education these last four chapters by revealing his power and glory through some amazing events. Jesus used five small loaves and two fish to feed a crowd of thousands of people. Then Jesus walked on the water. Then he used seven loaves and a few fish to feed another crowd of thousands of people. And last week we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration that Jesus revealed his divine glory to three of his disciples. And in each of these amazing and awe-inspiring events, Jesus has shown himself to be a unique figure, wielding the very power of God on earth. The power of the Old Testament says is exclusively reserved for God himself. 
And as the disciples have listened to Jesus and seen what Jesus is doing in these events, they're starting to get it. So we read in chapter 14, verse 33, they worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. And in chapter 16, Peter declared, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The training seems to be paying off. The disciples are learning. And now they're almost ready for the trip to Jerusalem. But there are a few final lessons that they must learn. And that's where we pick up now in the middle of Matthew 17. Jesus has taken his disciples pretty far into Gentile territory. And you might remember from last week, he climbed a very tall mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they beheld his divine glory. But now they're coming back down the mountain to rejoin the rest of the disciples who are below. And it is there on the descent that the next lesson awaits. Look at verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, and we'll stop there. A crowd is waiting for Jesus on the mountainside. And this crowd is agitated. Why? Well, Mark tells us in Mark 9, 14. When they came to the rest of the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. There's an argument within this crowd. Some Jewish scribes have appeared way up here in the Gentile hinterland. What are these guys doing way up in Gentile territory? Well, over the last few chapters, we've seen that delegations of religious elites have been sent from Jerusalem to go track down Jesus and accuse him and try to discredit him. And now we find another such group arguing with Jesus' disciples. Well, what are they arguing about? While Jesus and three of his friends were on the summit of the mountain experiencing the transfiguration, something very different was happening at the base of the mountain involving the rest of Jesus' disciples. And now we learn what's been going on, Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. A man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. A man steps forward as Jesus has returned and he tells Jesus what's been going on. And what's been going on is that this man is experiencing a terrible crisis. He has a son. Luke 9.38 tells us it's his only child. And this son is horribly afflicted. Now here in Matthew we're given a list of the boy's symptoms. And that might cause us to think that the boy's problem is strictly medical. But this man has a bit more insight about the true source of his son's problems. Luke 9.39, he says to Jesus, Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. This father understands that his son's suffering is not simply a medical problem. An evil spirit is involved. A demon is constantly tormenting his son. Now, as 21st century Americans, when we read this, I think there's probably some temptation for us to see this man as a superstitious hick. Because we live in a culture that has embraced an anti-supernatural worldview. Our culture says if you're sophisticated, if you're intellectual, you can only believe in the reality of the material world. But only deluded bumpkins believe in a spiritual realm. 
And unfortunately, many Christians today have subtly accepted aspects of this worldview. So when we read this passage and we hear about this child's symptoms, I would imagine almost all of us are very ready to accept that he has a serious neurological disorder. But we may find it personally unbelievable that his symptoms could be caused by a demon. We might be skeptical of anyone who would make that connection. But friends, you need to know the Bible tells us there is a real spiritual world which is inhabited not only by God, but other beings as well. By holy angels who serve God and advance God's purposes. And by demonic fallen angels who resist God and oppose His purposes. And not only do demons resist God, but the Bible tells us they can oppress humans. And we've previously seen in Matthew's gospel that when demons oppress humans, sometimes there are physical consequences of that oppression, which can resemble illness. Now, to be clear, I am not saying that every illness is a result of demonic oppression. And I am not saying that most illness is a result of demonic oppression. But I am saying that the Bible sometimes describes demonic oppression by listing physical symptoms. And if we confess a high view of the scriptures, we cannot simply attribute that to the superstitious ignorance of the ancients. No, we must accept that this can happen, that it has happened, and that it probably still does happen. And in our passage, that is what's happening. The boy's father is right. And Jesus is going to confirm his spiritual diagnosis. This child is demonized. And his oppression is not only characterized by physical symptoms. It's also characterized by self-destructive behavior. Back in Matthew 8, Jesus encountered another demonized man. And Mark tells us that man regularly cut himself with stones. His demon prompted him to self-harm, just like here where this demon oppresses this poor child by compelling him to try to drown himself or cast himself into a fire and burn to death. Friends, demons often try to drive people to suicide, and that's what's happening here. So this child has been terribly tormented by a demon. What's his father going to do about it? Well, he's heard about the fame of Jesus, and he knows Jesus can heal illness, and he knows Jesus can cast out demons. So the father here seeks help from Jesus. But when he catches up to Jesus' entourage, Jesus and three of his disciples are away. They're on top of the mountain. But his plight is urgent. He can't wait. So he asks for help from Jesus' other disciples who are there at the base of the mountain. But the man now reports this to Jesus, verse 16. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. This is why the crowd at the base of the mountain is stirred up. You know, maybe this crowd consists of people who have come to support this family. Or perhaps they have come with their own ailments that they want Jesus to heal. But what have they seen? Jesus' disciples have failed. That had to be really discouraging for the crowd, right? And more than that, this group of scribes has shown up. And they also have seen Jesus' disciples fail. And they likely are taunting the disciples, arguing that this failure discredits their master. This is a real mess. But at this moment, Jesus arrives on the scene. And he is read into the situation. And now that he hears about the disciples' failure, and he sees the situation with the crowd, look at his reaction. Verse 17. 
And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Man, that's a response of exasperation and frustration, isn't it? Jesus is frustrated at a faithless and twisted generation. You know, Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. He has come performing amazing wonders, all the wonders the Old Testament said the Messiah would perform. And yet he is received with so much unbelief. There's unbelief from the elites like these scribes who desperately want to discredit him. That's their response to the Messiah, hateful antagonism. Back in chapter 16, Jesus told another of these delegations of elites that they were part of an evil and adulterous generation. That's where the Jewish religious elites were, demonstrating wickedness and spiritual unfaithfulness towards God. They were faithless and perverse. But that's not true only of the elites. Because Jesus has performed all these miracles before the crowds. And the miracles have been received by people in the crowds. They've been healed. And yet Matthew 11 says even those folks, by and large, would not repent. Oh, they were happy to have the benefits of Jesus' supernatural power. They were happy to exploit that power, but they would not receive him as their Lord and King. They, too, were faithless and perverse. And yet we also must interpret Jesus' statement here within the context of our passage. Because while this perverse and unbelieving attitude characterized the scribes, while it certainly characterized some of the people in the crowd, Whose conduct is it that causes Jesus to express this frustration? The disciples, right? After all, Jesus says this right after this report that the disciples have failed to heal this child. And I think Jesus is saying that the disciples' failure here is a further expression of the wicked unbelief of his generation. The disciples have let the unbelieving attitude of their society rub off on them. Instead of acting in line with what Jesus has shown and taught them over the last few chapters, as soon as he climbed the mountain, they were back acting like their pre-conversion selves. And Jesus says their failure was a direct result of that. And I think that must be what Jesus is saying here, because look at what he says next. How long am I to be with you? And Jesus knows he's not going to remain on the earth much longer. He has spent the last several chapters giving a crash course to the disciples preparing them for what is to come, precisely because he wasn't going to be with them much longer. But the disciples here are acting like they haven't learned anything. They're demonstrating terrible faithlessness. And friends, this angers Jesus. Look at what he says next. How long am I to bear with you? Literally, he's asking, how, how long do I have to put up with this? With the unbelief of his society. With the obstinate unbelief of even those who are closest to him. Friends, I think we get a glimpse here into the heart of Jesus and the heart of God himself about unbelief. It's just so galling to him because God is good and faithful and kind and he has demonstrated this in so many ways. And Jesus has too in this book, right? And after all that Jesus has done in this book, you'd think even the most hard-hearted people in his society would have some degree of faith in Jesus. You'd think that even his own disciples who have acclaimed him as the Messiah would have some faith. But friends, the truth is, the obstinacy and hard-heartedness of man, even among the people of God, is amazing. 
Our sin is just so deep and ruinous. It's a terrible thing. Now, we might recognize that unbelief here is terrible. But we might have a question. Just why is Jesus so angry in this situation? I mean, healing a sick child and performing an exorcism, that doesn't sound like easy stuff. That sounds pretty challenging, right? Why did Jesus have this expectation that his disciples should have been able to handle this? Well, back in chapter 10, verse 1, we read that he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Back when Jesus sent the 12 on their missionary journey through Galilee, he specifically empowered them to perform the same kind of miracles he had been performing, including miracles of healing and exorcism. That's why he expected they should be able to handle this. He had empowered them to do so. Now, does that mean because Jesus empowered the 12 back then to heal and exorcise that believers today have this same power? Can we say Jesus gave them authority over demons and illnesses so today we likewise can heal and exorcise? I think the answer must be no. Because as I argued back in chapter 10, Jesus gave this power not to everyone who followed him, but only to the 12 or to those who went on missionary journeys, those who would become his apostles. And friends, believers today are not the apostles of old. They had a particular ministry and a particular empowerment that we do not have today. So I do not think that we should claim this power to heal and exorcise because I do not see any place in the scriptures where that power is entrusted to all believers for all time generally. But this sort of ministry of healing and exorcism was something Jesus empowered the twelve to do and which they have now failed to discharge. Having been vested by Jesus with the power to perform these kind of miracles, they try to perform one and they blow it. Why? Because they tried to use Jesus' power while drifting into the faithless mindset of the world around them. That's shocking, isn't it? No wonder Jesus is so angry about it. But Jesus isn't content to let their failure and faithlessness be the final word in the story. Verse 17, Jesus said, bring him here to me. Jesus calls for the boy to be brought before him. What the disciples can't do, he's going to do himself. And for a moment now, I want to highlight a few details that we find about this account in Mark chapter 9. Some details Matthew has not chosen to record. Mark chapter 9 verse 20 says, And when the spirit, the demon, saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now, in Matthew 8, we learn that the demons know who Jesus is, and they know that in the end Jesus will cast them into eternal torment. And so when this demon is brought into Jesus' presence... He again afflicts the child in one final act of hateful, defiant rage. And at this point in Mark, Jesus asks the boy's father about the child's affliction, how long it's been going on. And this questioning leads the boy's father to say this to Jesus, Mark chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You know, this man has seen Jesus' disciples fail. He's now talked with Jesus. Jesus has questioned him. And he seems to be starting to wonder, maybe my problem's too advanced even for Jesus. And so he says, 
if, if you can, he's not convinced that Jesus can help him. Now even he is evidencing the faithlessness of his wicked generation. And that draws a response from Jesus, Mark 9, 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. This demon is not too difficult for Jesus because Jesus is God. And as Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Friends, God has limitless power. And God is willing through Jesus to bring that great power to bear in the situations we encounter in this life. But Jesus says there is a condition. When we petition him, we must bring it in faith. We must believe that he is able to help us. But how much faith does God require before he will help us? I've seen some people run around and say, if you've got enough faith, you know, you can get health and wealth in limitless amounts. And, you know, somebody has a tragedy happen and they're praying and their prayers aren't answered and they're told, well, you just didn't have enough faith. How much faith do we need for God to answer our prayers? Do we need a vast measure of faith? Do we need perfect faith? Do we need unfailing faith? Now look at verse 24 of Mark chapter 9. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That isn't vast, perfect, unfailing faith, is it? This man wants to believe so badly, but he has seen his son suffering. He has seen how nothing he has done has helped. He has seen that his previous prayers have gone unanswered. He has seen Jesus' disciples have failed. He has heard the scribes scoffing. He has seen the unbelief in his generation. There are a lot of reasons why this man might have doubts about whether his son's situation can be improved. But Jesus says he needs to believe. And so he musters whatever little faith he can, and he asks Jesus to help him with the rest of his unbelief. And friends, that flawed faith is enough. Matthew 17, 18, And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Once more, Jesus reveals his mighty power, and this child is spared. And Luke 9, 43 tells us, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. The scribes are thwarted. They don't get any ammunition on Jesus out of this. And the crowd praises God, but the disciples remain confused. Matthew 17, 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? They don't understand their failure. You know, they've cast out demons before as part of their missionary trip through Galilee. What went wrong this time? Well, if you've got an old King James Version, your Bible's going to supply two answers. In verse 20, Jesus makes a statement about faith that we're going to look at in just a minute. And then in verse 21, Jesus says, This kind, that is the kind of demon, goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Now, if you have a modern translation of the Bible, you will likely not see verse 21 printed in the main text of Matthew's gospel. Or if it is printed, it's printed in brackets. And that is because out of the thousands of ancient copies of the New Testament that have been discovered, verse 21 is not found in any manuscript 
that can be dated prior to the 5th century. So I agree with the modern translations that verse 21 is not an original part of Matthew's gospel. If you say, well, where did it come from? Scribes seem to have invented verse 21 from a statement that's found in Mark's gospel. Mark 9.29, Jesus answered, this kind cannot come out except by prayer. Now again, there based on the manuscript evidence, it seems that some scribes added the words and fasting. But what we can glean from all of this is that in Mark 9, Jesus tells the disciples that the demon they were up against could be dislodged only through prayer. And yet the disciples failed to drive it out. What's that tell us? They failed to pray, right? Now that gives us insight into this whole situation. In chapter 10, Jesus empowered the 12 to cast out demons. But now when they encounter a demon and attempt to cast it out, they fail because they did not pray. That means that whatever they were trying to do to expel this demon was done with the idea that they had the power to do it themselves, apart from God. And they learned the hard way that they were wrong. Because ultimately, whatever power Jesus had given them was a power that was still dependent upon God. Jesus did not give the twelve authority to act on their own apart from the Father. Even Jesus didn't act apart from the Father. John 14, 10, he says, The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Even Jesus' works are empowered by the Father. So certainly if the disciples wanted to use the power Jesus had given them, they also needed the empowerment of the Father. They needed to pray. They needed to confess their dependence upon God and seek God's help. Because after all, it's God's power they want to marshal against this demon. But the disciples' problem is they acted without any humility and without any faith. They confessed no dependence upon God. They thought they could do it themselves. So they failed. But failure can be a powerful teacher. And Jesus has been teaching them many lessons, and now he's going to use this to teach them another one. And this now is the other part of Jesus' answer explaining why they failed. Matthew 17, verse 20. He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus said the disciples had little faith. And what he means is this. Yes, the disciples might have had a lot of faith in themselves and their own ability. They might have had a sort of worldly approach to problem solving that they trusted. But that isn't the kind of faith that accomplishes anything. They had little faith in the sense that they did not take their problem to God and they did not de demonstrate any trust or dependence on Him. See, friends, our faith is only as good as the object of our faith, as that which we trust. You know, a lot of people have a lot of faith in false gods. Remember back in 1 Kings 18, there's the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And they prayed with great passion to their idol for hours. They danced for him. They cut themselves and spilled their blood for him. And still he didn't answer. They had great faith. But it was worthless because they were trusting something that wasn't real and wasn't powerful. In the same way today. Islamic extremists crash airplanes into buildings and blow themselves up for their God. Buddhist monks dedicate their entire lives to poverty and hardship for their religion. They demonstrate great confidence in their faith to the point of insane extremes. But it doesn't do them any good either, does it? Because their gods and their systems aren't real or powerful. 
You know, friends, maybe many of us put our faith in ourselves, our intellect, our skills, our education, our connections, or we put our faith in the system. Our government will keep us stable and safe. Our economy will keep us rich. Our markets will keep us successful. We think that will reliably protect us and ground us and bless us. And that's our faith. A faith of worldly self-reliance and trust in institutions. But friends, that worldly faith is worthless because we fail, because governments fail, because markets fail. Friends, we all trust in something. But only faith in Jesus Christ gives us steadfastness for this life and a reliable hope for the future. Jesus says in Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus is the only reliable object for our faith. And we see in our passage that only faith in Jesus Christ can give us help in the many crises that we encounter in this life. And as we see here, the issue isn't the quantity of our faith. It isn't the quality of our faith. The boy's father says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. His tiny faith, faith like a mustard seed, which in the first century was proverbial for being very small, that was enough because he put his faith on the right object. He trusted Jesus. And if we trust Jesus, even if our faith is weak and frail, like that man's was, then Jesus says we can move mountains. Now, when Jesus says that, what does he mean? Does he expect we're going to go out to Big Bend National Park and rearrange the topography? Is that the idea? No. There are five surviving writings from the first and second centuries that use the phrase moving mountains as a figure of speech for performing the impossible. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying the hardest, the most seemingly impossible things in this life can be resolved if you trust in him and in the Father. Because, friends, if we pray with faith, anything is possible. Even the craziest prayers we offer can be answered favorably. Now, unfortunately, when these verses are quoted, very often people interpret them as meaning something else. Many false word of faith teachers use these verses to say this. Well, Jesus says, if you've got enough faith, you can command a mountain to move and it'll move. Nothing's impossible for you. So that means if you've got enough faith, you can have health and wealth. If you declare it and you believe it, it will happen. Friends, that is a tragic and blasphemous lie. That is not what Jesus is promising here. He is not saying that faith is the means by which we rub the genie lamp of God's power and compel him to do our bidding. Prayer is not about us bending God to our will. Rather, prayer is about us expressing our dependence upon God's gracious will and his mighty power. But friends, with God, anything is possible. God can do anything. He can solve our deepest and most seemingly impossible problems. But we would do well to remember 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Yes, God hears our prayers, but he grants those that are in line with his will. So sometimes we might pray and not get the answer that we want. Maybe because what we're praying for is not a part of God's decreed will for how history must unfold. 
Or perhaps because we're praying for something that is contrary to God's moral will. James 4 says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Friends, God is not a genie that we can manipulate through faith. His will and purposes shall stand. But friends, that should not deter us from praying. And it should not deter us from praying bold, big prayers. Hebrews 4 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Do you have a time of need today? Do you have a health concern or a spiritual concern or a financial concern or a family concern? Whatever anxieties you have, I implore you, do not fall into the unbelieving pattern of the world around us. Don't think you can just handle it yourself. Don't just trust man's wisdom or man's strategy or your resources to meet your needs. No, the, the answer is this. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Philippians 4 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Friend, take it to the Lord in prayer because God is sovereign because God is good, and because nothing is impossible with God. He who has power over every subatomic particle in the cosmos is someone you can trust with your problems. But, and this is really important, friends, when you pray, you've got to pray with faith. You've got to pray believing that God can answer your prayer, and you've got to have some expectation that he will do so. James 1.6 speaks of the person who prays for wisdom. And it says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It is an unstable act of double-mindedness to pray a prayer to God that you don't think he's going to answer. That's an insult to God and it's a waste of your time. It shows you've got no idea what's real in life and you've got no grounding. James says, if you pray without the expectation that God's going to show up and answer your prayer, you need to know you're right. He won't. Friends, when we pray, we've got to pray with faith. Now, that can be tough because sometimes, like the guy in our passage, our request seems to be a hope against hope, hope in the midst of great evidence that would point towards hopelessness. But we've got to be like the guy in this passage. We've got to muster whatever faith we can. Where we've got doubts, we've got to take them to Jesus. And then we've got to pray trusting God. Trusting that if he says no to us, it's best. And trusting that he very well might say yes. And grant our prayer no matter how impossible it might seem. Because he's got such great power. That is the prayer of faith. And that's the privilege that God gives us to pray. But we come now to our second, and don't worry, it's a much shorter point. God grants his people the privilege of true freedom because of our adoption as his children. Look at verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, and we'll stop here. From chapter 4 through 14 of this book, Jesus ministered almost exclusively in Galilee. But over the last four chapters, he's traveled a bit. During which, twice he's returned to Galilee, but most of the rest of the time he's been in Gentile territory. But now Jesus' trip through Gentile territory is over. And in fact, now Jesus' time in Galilee is nearly over. He's going to be here for chapter 17 and 18, and then he's going to head to Jerusalem. So Jesus, for the final time prior to his crucifixion, has returned to his home base. Now, we'll return to verses 22 and 23 in a minute, but look at 24. 
When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. So what happens is Jesus comes back to Capernaum, where he spent a ton of time in this book, and the disciples are there too. And some tax collectors approach Peter. Now, these are not the tax collectors who worked for Rome and were so hated by the Jews. No, these guys had come to collect an annual tax to support the operation of the temple in Jerusalem. And this tax finds its origins in Exodus 30, verse 13, where Israelites were required to pay a fee to support the place where God was worshipped. Now, it seems in Exodus that this tax was owed only once per lifetime, and certain groups in first century Judaism took it that way. But the Pharisees invented a rule that said, no, this tax has to be paid every year. And that's what's going on here. These guys have come to collect that. And they ask Peter, does Jesus pay the tax? And he says, yes, without consulting Jesus. So then Peter decides he probably should go talk to Jesus about what happens. Verse 25, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Jesus already knows what Peter said. Perhaps he overheard him. Perhaps he just omnisciently knew. And Jesus wants to have a word about it with Peter. Verse 25, he says, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now, to us, this question might not make a lot of sense. Because one of the founding principles of our country is that nobody is above the law. And that means everybody's under the tax code, even if you're important, even if you're related to somebody important. But in the ancient world, things were different. When Caesar imposed a tax, you think anybody asked his sons to pay up? No, right? Everybody else is under the tax, but not the emperor or his family. And Peter understood this, verse 26. And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now Jesus makes his point. In the scenario he paints, the emperor's, kings, or the emperor's kids are free from the tax. And now Jesus applies this to the question put to him about the temple tax. Because the temple tax isn't being collected in the name of Caesar, it's being collected in the name of God. So if Caesar's sons are exempt from Caesar's taxes, shouldn't God's son be exempt from God's tax? That's the logic. Except notice that Jesus does not say, then the son singular is free. No, he says, then the sons plural are free. Who are these sons? Well, in verse 27, we see that Jesus includes Peter in this statement of being free. So the reference to sons here applies both to Jesus and to those who follow Jesus. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is the Son of God in a unique sense. And yet the Bible tells us all those who belong to Jesus have been adopted into God's family as his children. This is such an important point we find in the New Testament. Believing, friend, you have the privilege of having been adopted into the family of God. Ephesians 1 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 1 considers this to be the highest blessing the Father has bestowed on us, friends. He has chosen us and predestined us to be his children, to live forever with him in holy splendor. And while this idea of adoption in the Bible is often connected with the idea that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we will live in the new creation... Sometimes the New Testament makes a different point off of this idea of adoption. The idea that sonship is connected to freedom. Now when I talk about freedom here, I want to start by saying what this passage is not saying. This is not saying believers are free from paying taxes to the government. Okay, some people want that to be what this is saying. 
But in chapter 22, Jesus says, no, we've got to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In Romans 13, Paul says we've got to pay taxes to whom taxes are due. This has nothing to do with our obligations to the state. Rather, it's a greater freedom Jesus has in mind, which Paul talks about in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir to God. The Father sent the Son into this world to redeem, to buy out of slavery those who were under the law. Indeed, Galatians 4 and 5 tell us again and again, the Old Testament law is closely connected to slavery. And the idea is this, formerly, people were enslaved under the rigorous strictures of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament law. But in Christ, those who have previously been burdened with the Old Law have been set free from its strictures. We are no longer slaves under the old covenant. Now we are sons under the new covenant. And we have a personal, familial relationship with God. Now that doesn't mean that we're free to live however we want. No believing friends. We are obligated to keep the commands we find in the New Testament. But we have been set free from the old covenant and the old law. We are not bound to the dietary laws. Or the Sabbath rules. Or ceremonial conceptions of clean and unclean. The sons and daughters of God are free. Galatians 5 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And applying that to our text then, we can say just as Peter has been set free from the temple tax because of his association with Jesus, we who believe, we who are God's adopted children are also free from the strictures of the old covenant and also from the man-made rules like the Pharisees who said, oh, let's have extra taxes. We're not bound to any legalistic man-made code of conduct either. Friends, the children of God are free, and God means to keep us that way. That's why Galatians 5 continues, Stand firm, therefore, and do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. We must not seek righteousness through a return to Judaism, where it's laws and forms. Many people do that today in the guise of the Hebrew Roots Movement or Messianic Judaism. Friends, the idea that a closer proximity to the religion of ancient Israel will bring us closer to God is false. We also must resist man-made regulations like the Pharisees made up rules. We've got to submit only to what the scriptures say. Because believing friends, we have been set free in Christ. And that is not a lawless freedom or an anarchic freedom, because that would just be more slavery to sin. No, it's a freedom from the old law and a freedom to live a new life of service and obedience to Jesus. But even this freedom has to be tempered. Look at verse 27. He says, however, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus and his disciples were free in principle from the tax. But Jesus has no interest in using this freedom as an opportunity to dispute with the religious elites. So for the first time, Jesus lays down a principle that will be so key in later passages about Christian liberty. We shouldn't use our liberty to give needless offense. We should consider the impact that our exercises of Christian liberty have on other people. Over the last few years, many Christians in our society seem to have rebelled against this principle. We have preferred our culture's notion of selfish and loveless liberty to the true freedom taught in the scriptures. 
But the Christian's freedom must always be constrained by our legitimate love and concern for the welfare of others. And Jesus here, in the name of not provoking needless offense, sends Peter to pay the tax. And Peter's to get his money by fishing and miraculously finding a fish with the right amount of money in its mouth. But again, I think the big point here is that those who belong to Christ are the children of God. And so we have been given freedom from the law and from man-made rules. And we must use this freedom in a way that does not provoke needless offense. But we conclude briefly now with our last point in which we see the basis for these privileged positions we enjoy. Look back at verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is the third time that Jesus has now plainly told the disciples where this journey will end. Back in chapter 16, he said he's got to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day raised. Chapter 17, verse 12, he says, The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. This is the plan and purpose of God. Jesus had to be delivered or betrayed into the hands of wicked human authorities on earth who will kill him, and then he will rise again on the third day. Jesus told the disciples this again and again. They didn't get it. They wouldn't get it until after the resurrection. But what we learn from these verses is this. This is where Jesus' path leads. And friends, Jesus' death, which he prophesies here, is the source of all the privileges and all the blessings we enjoy in God. Because Jesus' death is what makes it possible for God's enemies to become his people. Friends, the wages of sin is death. We are all traitors in God's universe. We are sinners by nature, part of a fallen and cursed race. We are sinners by choice. We have done what God has forbidden. We have failed to do what God has commanded. And all of that means we deserve death in this life and eternally. But Jesus says in Matthew 20, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to die in our place. He came to offer his life as a ransom payment for our sin. He paid the debt we could not pay. He bared the judgment that we owed. And friends, because of Jesus' death, we have the privileges that this passage describes. Jesus' death enables us to become God's children. Hebrews 2 says this, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus' death is the foundation of our adoption. He died in our place. We have solidarity with him. So he reckons all those who have trusted in him as his brothers and sisters. More than that, listen to Hebrews 10. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Jesus' death has given us unparalleled access to the very throne room of God in heaven above where we can go and make our petitions directly to the Father through the Son. So friends, we have a great set of privileges because Jesus has died for us and risen. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says this, Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And if that's true, friends, then I want to close with this. 
If you have never come to Christ, you are missing out on amazing privileges. You are not a part of God's family. God does not hear your prayers. You are still in slavery to sin, and you stand under the sentence of eternal condemnation. Turn from your sins. Believe in Jesus, who is God and man, who has died and risen. Cast yourself upon his mercy. But today, if you do know Jesus, then rejoice, because God has indeed given us Every good and perfect gift he has given us, these amazing privileges, avail yourself of them. Walk in the true freedom of the children of God. Be secure in your position before him. Don't walk in licentiousness, but neither should you be in bondage to legalism. And friend, friend, pray with faith, because God has given us such great access. Bring your petitions before him. Because he is a God for whom nothing is impossible. May we rejoice this morning and enjoy all the good things that God has given us.